So welcome to our Early Years Conversation podcast with me, Kate Moxley and Kerry Payne. Today we are really excited to be joined by Susie Rowland. She is an ADHD autism specialist trainer, a family coach, a CBT practitioner, author of the very recent and already sold out Send in the Clowns um, and founder of the Happy in Schools project. Susie is also a mother of two. Welcome mm -hmm. Susie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's really exciting. We're recording these podcasts as part of our special for Early Years Wellbeing Week. And so we always start with our question of how are you feeling? How are you feeling today? Great question. I love that. And I've actually thought about it and I realise I very seldom think about that. So it's a great way to, to kick off. And I think my um, primary feeling today is one of gratitude. I, I love doing um, all of this promotion. I love talking to people about my passion. Um, my previous career was sort of marketing and PR, which was great, but in a more corporate environment. And, and what I'm doing now is, is, is just, it just doesn't feel like work. I love what I do. And I think that's something to be hugely grateful for. And I haven't got to go and get a train and you know all of those brilliant things. So that's, that's good. I also feel slightly anxious if I'm honest, and that's that's primarily because we're at week three of going back to college with my teenager, and uh, he has ADHD and autism, and it's been a huge transition, so a new environment and um, new routine, and we're doing one week in college, one week at home, and then we had no GCSEs, nothing during the summer, and um, so like many parents, you know, that whole introduction back into education hasn't been easy <laughs> um, and we have a few sort of wobbles I think they're called so yeah that that makes me feel slightly anxious and I think um, if I didn't feel anxious I probably wouldn't be that much of a switched on parent I, I think I'd probably be too relaxed I think it's it's okay to worry because there are there is a lot to think about and a lot to manage um, and my final feeling, because you know I can talk a lot here, there's no, there's no issue with <laughs> My final feeling is one of compassion because, um, you know, uh, contrasting my um, gratefulness and my, my comfort, um, I'm thinking today of all the people that have got difficulties and, you know, we, we've heard about Trump having um, COVID and it must make people think about you know, other relatives or if they've lost friends this year um, for whatever reason. So there are people who are not having such a good time and, and not very, you know, content with life at the moment. So I feel all those things together. Wow, I think that is the best answer to that question we've ever had. <laughs> and it's also really, it made me, like each point you said was kind of, I've just already been scribbling down kind of notes and reflections on that really a really important point to kind of reflecting on kind of gratitude um, and obviously that kind of links into to that uh, I suppose that context and uh, of um, you know thinking about what other people might be experiencing at the moment but also just how true it is and we've recorded some different podcasts this week um, at the start of the week we spoke with Rosie from Orchid and Dandelions and we were speaking about the mental load that especially um, mothers perhaps have or women um, within their roles um, within their family dynamics and actually 
so often we don't actually connect to those all of those different roles we have in our relationships within whether it's work or home or family or whatever is going on for us we don't actually check in with that mental load and attribute it to how we're feeling and so absolutely there are things that we're all dealing with at the moment like you've just described with your son that some of us have not even acknowledged that might be showing up in mentally or physically how we're feeling and I just thought that was like a really really interesting point um so thank you for that and that's the whole point of that how are you feeling because so often and especially in education and in early years um, maybe not so much at the moment but usually you're passing people a lot in corridors and you're having fleeting interactions with people and people ask you how you are and you just tend to say fine or I'm okay or you never really scratch the surface and really take the time to connect or check in with how you're feeling and that was the whole point so Thank you so much for that. Um, so as with the introduction, we talked about your book, which is very recently um, um, been published, uh, Sending the Clowns. So tell us a little bit more about that book. Um, and um, yeah, just, just tell us all about it. Right, okay. Um, I, yeah. So it started years ago when my son was being diagnosed um, with autism and ADHD. And I was sort of being passed around pillar to post and I didn't know what was going on and he was getting excluded and I was getting a huge amount of um, guilt, I guess, you know, has he had breakfast this morning? Why is he behaving like this? Um, maybe you should give up your job <laughs> and all of those things that came from kind of well-meaning teachers. I'm sure they, they meant well, but, um, you know, I carried around a huge amount of guilt and I, I genuinely didn't know what was what was going on. And I think it's very common, particularly how boys present with neurodiversity, um, you know, this very externalizing and, and lots of, you know, sort of bad behavior and, um, and uh, sort of distress, you know, physical distress. Um, so that was quite difficult. So I started off writing um, sort of diary notes and trying to keep a track of when his appointments were and we were always going to various clinics and health visitors and all the rest of it. And so um, in my career, I was always writing. So it made sense to write what was happening and try and keep track of, of the, the nightmare. <laughs> um, and then I sort of, you know put that down for a bit and then things settled down and he got his diagnosis I mean I've made it sound very quick but it wasn't at all <laughs> it was about um he was diagnosed when he was nine um and he was being excluded from school you know pretty much at the beginning from primary school aged five and six so there were quite a few years of, of turbulence and um got the diagnosis and things calmed down a bit and then uh, then they kind of didn't again and um, then there were you know, as he was transitioning between lesson to lesson or school from primary school to secondary, there were um, more serious concerns about, you know, how his behaviour was managed and should he have medication. And and I just thought, you know, it'd be really good to capture all of my experiences. I mean, we were talking about nearly 10 years worth of, of stuff. Um, and my growing interest in, in, in ADHD and autism particularly and um, I, I approached a publisher, Hashtag Press, and uh, she was very, very, very interested. Didn't have uh, children on the spectrum, but just felt that there was such a strong story to tell. Um, and I think what made it a bit more of um, just a personal story was I've also included lots of um, 
thing you know signposts and where people can go for, for more help and things I found useful things to think about when you're going through that process and it talks right from the beginning to what might be happening how it might present in the classroom all the way through to the assessment the diagnosis and then all the professionals you might meet what their titles are what they are what they do and then post-diagnosis and then a little bit about education and trying to help people understand that an EHCP doesn't isn't a magic bullet but it can do this this and this and um, looking at what types of schools you might want your child to be in so I really sort of arced out quite considerably from my original story you know had a bad day today Ugh, hate the school <laughs> and expanded you know as, as I grew and, and he grew and I was slightly more removed from it and I, I didn't I wasn't in the full grip of the you know upset and I became more rational and I did more research I thought this is quite a helpful thing to um, the parents who are at that entry point um, and just to hold hold a hand really because I would love to have read a book like that um, so I, I did it and it, it came out on the 3rd of September and um, it's it sold out the first print run so I've just done another print run um, this week just gone and it's just a dream come true because the feedback has been really good and, and for me that's where that's kind of a therapy for me knowing that you know parents have said you know god this is so helpful and I didn't know about that and I hadn't thought of this and that's kind of all you want really from from something like this um sorry I had to put my mute on because the the gardener has decided to use the largest leaf blower machine whilst we're recording so I'm sorry if you can hear a leaf blower but um it was really, really um, interesting to hear um, how the book progressed, Susie, over the years and, and your own journey as a parent. And my specialism is, is in SEND. I do a lot of work around, around the parent and educator partnership. And something that I have seen a lot in research actually is that we place a lot of onus on the specialist as the supportive network, but actually it often comes through those discussions and connections that happen between parents. And so the way you describe that, it's almost like a companion book for a parent mm. from a parent who has been through that journey. Have you, in terms of your own support networks and obviously share what you, you feel comfortable with, but did you find that when you were going through your own journey with your son, that parents, other parents formed that kind of, community or where the specialist good in your case or the education providers like what was that like uh for me i i think um you know i'm all about individualism and every parent is different and i think i mean he was diagnosed in 2011 2012 so it's a long time ago now and it's it's very you know it's very um current and acceptable to talk about your children's difficulties at the moment but I I was a single parent and I was also working full-time and I didn't really have that parent network so I wasn't the one that was at the school gates chatting with the other parents finding out what was going on um, I was the one that literally just chucked him out of the car and then went to the train station <laughs> so I didn't I didn't feel I had that connection and I think a lot of parents who work anyway are slightly 
one step removed from that um, community at the school gates. Um, and also I, like a lot of parents that I've um, worked with, it takes a while from the diagnosis to the point of actually understanding what it means for you as a parent and for your family. And I think there's a kind of cognitive, cognitive delay, if you like. So you kind of think, yeah, got diagnosis, great. And then you think, what now? <laughs> what happens next? And, and so I, I came to that network, you know, I, I began to get more involved with the Richmond Parent Carer Partnership and um, the SOS SEN and the NAS um, a bit more remotely and, and groups. And it, 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 I got more involved as my realisation grew that this was a this was a lifelong thing and the impact on my working life was going to be significant. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a gradual process. Um, and like many parents as well, I, I actually had to leave my full-time career um, in order to be at home when he got home from school, because all of the changes with childminders and, and all of that transition and all of the change every single day, and if there was a supply teacher, or the Senko wasn't there, or you know any change at all. <laughs> it was very difficult to manage that, and then I wouldn't be there at the end of the day, and I wouldn't be able to take delivery of all those messages. And I'd also still get phone calls from school. Can you come and get him now? I'm like, well, it will take me about an hour and a half <laughs> to get on the train. Blah blah blah. So the stress, um, you know, the the mental load, as you mentioned, Kate, on me. Um, and, and him and us was significant. So I got more involved in that network, um, you know, when I'd left my job and, and I sort of created a whole new career through Happy In School projects. And what about the, um, the projects that you're working on? Cause they sound really exciting. How did, how did that kind of come about and what, what does yeah. it look like in practice? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's all a bit of a slower burn. I mean, the Happy In School set up sort of 2017 in my head and then 2018, I, I sort of went live. Um, and that, that looks like me working with partners and charities, etc., um, sharing my experiences. Um, but also now I'm training for um, a cognitive behavior therapy role, sort of a sort of diploma level role. I can bring all of that to those workshops. So it's, I like to explain to parents what, what it actually looks like in the classroom and give them the tools how they can um, advocate for themselves because it's a really weird thing. When, you, when you're an autism parent and um, particularly if you, are on the spectrum yourself. So a lot of parents also discover through their own child that they, they have um, a neurodiversity, it's very common. Um, mm -hmm. So I have parents who are also autistic or parents who also have ADHD, who, who find that interaction with the school really challenging. And they already feel at a disadvantage because their child's had, you know, hit someone or had a meltdown or didn't want to go into a certain lesson or whatever. And then they have to deal with their own um, difficulties of communication, issues of shame and stress. So what I try to do um, is to take 
all and I've been in all of those situations <laughs> so I try and take all of my um, learnings and give parents tools and ideas so scripts of how to say things or say you no know, write a letter write some notes for yourself before you go into a meeting make sure if there's going to be more than one person try and find out who if it's going to be the head teacher and the senko or because it's a very it can be a very stressful environment and you actually almost feel like even though you're a grown adult you feel like you're the child <laughs> you feel like you're on trial as well you know well why why is he doing this and why didn't she did why didn't she want to come on the school trip and and you 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 know you just lose all your your sense of being an adult it's a really weird sort of um, uh, dynamic that, you know, you, you become a child and you sort of sit there and take all of this stuff and then you come out and go, oh, why didn't I say this? And But they don't know that he does that because of his autism or, you know, she doesn't do that because she's, you know, she's masking. And so I sort of say, well, you need to prepare for this meeting. And so, so it's very much about empowerment as much as it is about talking about the, the neurodiversity yeah and what's yeah. really interesting is i you may have read it already but there is a book called the essential conversation and mm. um, it's by a lady i think her surname is longford and she um, examined she described the relationship between a parent and an educator as an adverse i can never pronounce that word adversarial Episode, like, yeah. yeah so it's and it was one of the most refreshing books that I've ever read because it acknowledged that that relationship mm -hmm. as much as we talk about it being smooth running and parent partnership and that connectivity, yeah. it's actually a very very odd relationship because often the intentions of a parent yeah. and a practitioner or an educator are actually quite different the outcome yeah. might be the same but the yeah. way of getting there is often very different and yeah. There was this anecdote in the book that really made me sad and it was about um it was about two parents of a child with um developmental needs and they really wanted to belong to this school they wanted to feel accepted mm -hmm. and so there was a meet and greet and they took a big um, bottle of coca-cola and a big chocolate cake oh. and they took it as like a is almost like a, a transitional object of like hi we're here we want to get yes. involved and, and yeah, the yeah. teachers all looked at them and very swiftly removed the coke and the cake and looked down oh. upon them you know as though like what a bad choice to bring sugary snacks into into the school <laughs> and the description was how those how the teachers had failed to see that act of wanting to belong yeah. and to connect and, yeah. and judged instead and I think a lot of the work that I've done with parents is that fear of that judgment always kind of sitting quite nearby it's, it's always there and it's often something very difficult to interact with and go actually we might be thinking differently about this situation what's your intention and what's mine because if at least there's a bit more transparency about those intentions and not seeing the child as a problem as well because a lot of the the, the, the discussions around SEND is the child is a difficulty, the child mm -hmm. is less than, child is a problem, rather than the child, like you said, that individualism and celebrating the child's unique learning profile rather than seeing the autism and the ADHD as a, as a deficit, it's actually mm -hmm. part of who they are. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting that that's, that's the, the focus of your work is, is actually mm -hmm. helping parents to feel more empowered in that situation because I think parents are often so looked down upon. Yeah, yet they are so they are such an expert body of knowledge. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I do welcome because um, obviously 
parents can also be professionals. Mm -hmm. So I, I have had uh, speech and language therapists and you know LSA's teachers come along to the sessions and they come along um, with two hats, if you like. Um, and it's really interesting to hear their perspectives on, on you know, and, and to sort of let go of their teacher hat mm -hmm. and sit more in the parent role and then understand how they can make the, I mean, generally uh, professionals who have, who have experience of SEND personally um, tend to get it generally. It, it's, it's those that, that perhaps don't always understand the nuances and um, you know, and I and I think really, if you, you know, the the idea is any teacher should be a send teacher because the the way that you interact with send children it should be a universal type of approach. You know, say it's looking at the individual, looking at the, the you know the, the behaviour and the functions of behaviour, and and then you know being a good listening, you know, a listening and trusted adult. So I think all of those things aren't unique, and a lot of them aren't difficult or expensive. Um, so it's, but it's really breaking down barriers and barriers can build up really fast as well, because, you know, you, you, um, I mean, sorry, my, my brain's jumping around. I, I wanted yeah, to say, <laughs> I wanted to say, um, as it's October and Black History Month, that's something else that I've experienced as a black parent um, or dual heritage, because there is again that there's the um, perception of the child's behaviour being very much a, a behaviour issue rather than a neurodiversity issue. So, so you know, and that's also we certainly experienced that because we fell into that, um, you know, oh, single parent, you know, from Caribbean background. Oh dear, oh dear. Let's <laughs> let's look at how we can exclude him out of the classroom because he is the problem. And actually, you know, looking back at the presentations like covering his ears when there was loud music in the classroom um running under the table to get away from all the noise and you know an overwhelm i look back and think god they're classic signs <laughs> it's pretty textbook stuff um and also not having any friend you know difficulty in um initiating and sustaining conversation so we definitely had speech um and language issues so you think, well, that's actually really interesting. So, I, you know, there's a section in the book where I look at the statistics and look at how can we unpick, you know, that all of the DfE statistics around exclusions in particular, we know that children um, with SEND are more vulnerable to exclusion. Children from sort of Roma gypsy backgrounds are more vulnerable to exclusion. Um, black boys, boys more than girls are particularly prone to exclusion. So, you know, I had a son that was, was from um, uh, a single parent family from African Caribbean history with SEND that was undiagnosed. So actually you think there's a high, the high possibility of what happening happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it's just sort of flagging that, you know, amongst all of the other things that we are um, looking at, you know, I mean, I'm really keen that the the undiagnosed are diagnosed quickly. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's if you want to look at have any kind of um, takeout from the book, because you know we know that all of that intervention, you know, whatever race or background, all of that intervention support will help them to access school and you know support their well being. And the longer they are undiagnosed for the more difficult they will 
find the classroom environment and the more compromised their mental well-being will become. So, sorry, Kate, you're looking at me. Yeah, no, no, I, I would, it's just really interesting kind of hearing you both talk. I, I was just, it was almost like I was just observing your, your conversation then really. It's just really interesting, I suppose, for me, what I was thinking of was how you talked about how things have changed over the years. And there is more understanding around, um, um, I suppose, neurodiversity. There's more understanding around mental health issues. Um, you know, there's been a bit of a shift in the change in regard to early years with, with behaviour in that, um, you know, behaviour is, a, you know, it's a form of communication and actually looking deeper and an understanding around neuroscience and self-regulation and things that we didn't particularly have years ago. Um, mm. And also kind of unpicking what you were talking about um, race really and the, the stats around exclusion and, and um, you know, we're, we're in a world where we're encouraging teachers to tackle their unconscious bias and understand and really get to know that like the children right in front of them. Um, mm -hmm. And as you were both discussing, obviously the relationship between the parent and the carer or the <clears throat> teacher is obviously crucial. Mm. In early years, it tends to be quite tricky because we get to see parents at probably the most stressful part of their day, which is as they're rushing in to drop them off or as they're rushing in to collect them to sometimes collect children from other places. And so sometimes that relationship and that dynamic in early years can be quite hard if you are a working, busy parent and you're trying to rush in and you're trying to... Um, develop that relationship because you don't have that time to interact and talk with one another and so parent and um, staff can sometimes feel frustrated with parents and parents can obviously feel that frustration with staff mm. but I think one of the biggest things I've seen at the moment is actually really you know educators wanting to work in pa partnership with parents because par they've needed to really lean on each other during this time with um, settings being closed and children being at home and so um, obviously within your book it, you talk about you know the impact on parents mental health and well-being and mm. that's been that's been huge during this time hasn't it mm, definitely definitely and I, th I think that's something that that we, you know, we kind of overlook, and and I think that there is um, there's so there's so I think this is a really pivotal time. I think on the positive, <laughs> let's keep it positive where we can. Um, I see this whole shift and the lockdown and the COVID and all of the change. It can, for some some groups, be very positive because as you say we've had to lean on each other and we've had to learn new ways of doing things i mean this whole zoom phenomenon mm -hmm. and you know working from home and you know people are sort of changing around their houses and moving further away from the city they don't have to live so near to commute and so i think that um you know there are lots of positives that are coming out of this and i would i would like to, to think that um and also taking into account the needs of neurodiverse children. So my, my, my daughter is a primary school teacher and she was going in during the, the, the main period, you know, to educate the kids of um, key workers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everyone is touched by this in a different way. And I think, you know, if we could all sort of maybe write down sort of for ourselves, 
we all we all know what the bad things have been because we've all lived through them and we're still living through them but what what are the good things you know what are the lessons that we've learned um and how can we sustain some of those good things that we've learned i think that would be really good and i think having you know changing the blurring the lines is a really good way to think of it so that person isn't just a teacher she's also just as vulnerable to um covid as the next person or anything and the next person and, and then that person isn't just a parent but they might also be a nurse you know so i think we all need to kind of step out of roles and step into different roles or realize that we each we each have a role we each take on several roles if that makes sense that was very very convoluted <laughs> so you know you're a teacher you're a senko you're a parent you know you're a daughter whatever you're a carer you're so we're all we have to look at each other as being a bit wider than the narrow person we see in front of us that's what i'm trying to get to which is so interesting because the a lot of the advocacy in SEND is not being limited by labels but that actually expands beyond having SEND it's about the roles that we we take on in our everyday lives the labels that we you know take on as well and actually we are more than one thing and I am lecture for a university and I felt that that was some of the communication that I was really trying to get across to students last semester when it was so difficult. It was like, mm. I am not just your lecturer. I'm a human being. I'm a wife. I'm a freelance consultant. I'm an auntie. I'm a yeah. child, a daughter. And it was, you don't want to lay all that on somebody, but just to remember that actually in the role that you're presenting in that moment, there are that there is that multifaceted element as well. And you're mm -hmm. managing all those different aspects. Absolutely. Which I think people can madly forget. They can yeah. very quickly forget that you are more than one thing. I think that's yeah. an important point. Yeah, yeah. I was watching um, Brenny, Brenny Brown yesterday, one of her um, live talks. And she talked about, um, you know, the vulnerability thing. And, and maybe that vulnerability is gently reminding people that you are other things too. Mm. And then that might change the dynamic of how you, how you interact with them and how they listen to you and vice versa. It's just maybe it's just that subtle change um of, of roles and i think then you know there has to be something positive that comes out of this <laughs> undetermined <laughs> so so, yeah. yeah, I'm absolutely with you. And it's really funny that you mentioned Brené Brown there. I don't think we go through a podcast without talking about <laughs> Brené. As you were both, I'd written down feeling with people, which is, is how Brené Brown describes empathy. And I think that is kind of summing up what we're kind of talking about, really, is that, and, and you were describing something that I, I've said very, very, um, in very similar ways, which is that everyone has experienced um, or has been impacted by COVID, um, however big or small in some way. And so, you know, that whole phrase of, you know, other people have it worse or whatever, um, it, which usually isn't helpful or healthy to encourage people to open up and talk how they're feeling. At the moment, it, it, we're all been, we've all been feeling with each other. So it's mm. been okay to say, oh, this has affected me and I found this tough. And we have been more vulnerable because we've had to show, especially working from home, as you said, you know, we've had to show sometimes that, you know, we're not perfect. We're all human. Every day is a, every day is a learning day. And I think showing that more human side um, is, is one of those big things that we'll have learned from this whole situation, I, I think. Mm. 
definitely. And another another famous sort of guru is um, I could never say her name, Ilana Van Zant. Van Zant. I've <laughs> I'll, not heard of Ilana. So I'll I'll send it through. Oh, can I maybe write a message? Oh, I can maybe do it in chat here. <laughs> I still won't be able to get it right anyway. Yeah. But, um, I think it's something like that. I'll send it to you. Yeah. But um, she talks in one of her books. She talks about. Oh, I just got rid of the screen. Sorry. Um, she talks about the the valley of acceptance, which I think is quite a good um, a good way of describing. We all go through these sort of peaks and troughs in life, and then one of them is the valley of acceptance. So whether you're you know, you find yourself single or unmarried or out of a job or whatever it is, part of getting through that sort of trough or valley is accepting it and saying, okay, well, I'm here. And it's, it's acceptance isn't the same as, you know, oh, suck it up. It's, it's a bit more, <laughs> it's a bit more zen. It's a bit more proactive, isn't it? You know, it, it's like, okay, I'm here and this is what's happening. And it's that sort of talking it through to yourself mm. and working out, so what's, what's happening here and why do I feel uncomfortable and what could I learn out of it? And it's all of that kind of self-analysis, which I think is much more powerful than saying, you know, well, you know, life sucks and you're just here and, you know, we just got to get over it. I think if you're in that place and you might find yourself, you know, unemployed or in a very difficult personal situation it's it's a it's kind of looking at well what's happening here and what can I do and how can I best manage this while I'm in this place because we all know we have points in our life that generally after a period of time they will change mm. you know and I, I don't know about you guys but I've I've been unemployed and I've been an unemployed single mum you know with a mortgage ah! <laughs> <laughs> and um and I think that kind of experience means I can understand and have empathy for parents who are going through things and they they are finding things difficult and you know so even if you come out of that valley with empathy that's that's good 100% yeah definitely and I think um speaking on gurus as we were talking about our inspirations I um, I listened to a TED talk a few weeks ago now by somebody called Bettina Love. Okay. Uh, she does a lot of advocacy um, around, she's a um, Black Lives Matter, um, and I can never pronounce this word, Abol I, can't, I can't say it. Abolitionist. That's yeah. the word. Um, so she um, <laughs> advocates that form of curriculum. And something she said in her TED talk, which I've shared with all my students for the start of term, and coming back to that concept of taking on more than one role is that if we if we expect people or if we don't allow people to bring themselves to a situation to bring their whole selves we're actually murdering their spirit which it sounded very dramatic when mm. I was to it, but you know like it's so true and she was talking about it in terms of education and that because we we exist in such an outdated education system unfortunately mm -hmm. in this country and what she was saying is that a lot of the time the teacher is is essentially asking the child not to bring who they are um, and and that comes across lots of different aspects of identity and she was talking around race um, mm -hmm. and I was thinking about it in terms of SEND so I also have a diagnosis of ADHD 
And I thought, actually, throughout my entire lifespan, my approach to the world is I can't bring my whole self to situations. I have to mask or flatten mm. this aspect or hide this bit. But actually, it's only since I've started to go, no, this comes with me. It's here. Yeah. I can see who I am. Mm. That those those connections have been more authentic. Mm. Um, and that that's really, really stuck with me. So there's my guru share of the day. Awesome. Um, I think I've heard of her. And I think it's not abolitionist. It could be decolonizing the curriculum. Yeah, possibly. She's in. Um, she's Abolitionist teaching. I've got her book, and it's definitely. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's definitely. Um, it's, but she does a series of podcasts and all sorts of different things. Awesome. So, yeah, but um, I, I love that um, example, Kerry, and I, I think that happens to us as children, you know. And then that would. Exp I, I talk about that a lot in the work. <coughs> Now I'm delivering training. I've even said these words this week. We have been encouraged to put on a mask to face the world, and that mask hides all those vulnerabilities and insecurities. And we mm -hmm. do have to show up as this best shiny version of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But that best shiny version, when we're hiding stuff, we're not really being who we are, which means we're not always authentic without meaning to be, which is why we're probably... You know, we've also talked about how we judge each other and make assumptions of each other. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes... That can happen, I suppose, when we're picking up on maybe someone not always being genuine, but mm -hmm. only, and then it's like, whoa, that gosh, this is a big thread of thought. Yeah. It is, yeah. it is. Yeah. but funny, funny about masking because that's one of the reasons why the book is called Send in the Clowns because it's about, you know, when you obviously a clown wears a mask and you clowns are there to make us laugh and, and you know, the sort of slapstick. Um, but I've always thought there's something a bit sad about clowns. Um, this is a kind of like weird thing that they kind of make you laugh but there's something very poignant about that whole um being like a jester you know and they also wear clowns and it was um that whole concept of children with um undiagnosed needs and they look like one thing you know like the slapstick clown and they're there making everyone laugh and but underneath it, they're very, very different. And they're actually using that mask to hide their vulnerability. And I remember saying to my son, you know, he said once, you know, oh, I have to go back to clown school. And I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, and, in, you know, and why he was sort of playing up, playing to the classroom, playing to the gallery. And he'd say, well, I want them to like me. I want them to be my friend, which is quite a logical, um, you know, workaround, isn't it really? But actually underneath all of that um you know making people laugh was a very very unhappy young person and you know i think it happens a lot in classrooms where the culture is to fit in you know by any means necessary um and obviously with any neurodiversity you don't fit in um which i think is a good thing because i i love what i do and i and i think i fit in more than I've ever fitted in anywhere in my whole entire life. And it's it's really weird. It's like now I'm being me, which is the craziest thing, you know, and I, and I think, well, it's taken me all my life to be this honest with myself and, and to sort of share. And that's why I see, you know, this, this sort of whole conversation as an absolute blessing because I would never have been able to find my voice before because I was always masking I was always being corporate and sensitive sensible and I was you know the working person and I didn't have time for any you know everything was all trimmed back to the bone 
and uh, I was very unhappy. You know, I was I was proficient and I was I was good, but I wasn't myself. And I so I think you know, wow, what a revelation <laughs> it is to find yourself really. Absolutely, and I think that will speak to lots of people, Susie. And certainly, I'm listening to it, and it makes me think about you know. Um, as a, a quote that says, you know, you find, um, I learned more about myself in the dark than I ever did in the light. And that kind of sums up what we've talked about in terms of this weird year that we're in and how we're determined to find the, the positives and we just, we're determined to focus on the things that um, we have learned during this time and how they will make a difference to us in the future. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I thought that was really uh, poignant there. Anything you wanted to add, Kerry, as we finish this conversation, which we could carry on with all day, to be fair. <laughs> the, actually, the theme of, of masking, it, it almost as, yeah, that concluding point that I, something that I've realised in my later adult life is a lot of that burnout, a lot of that exhaustion, a lot of that just feeling unhappy is because I think we push ourselves to such extremes to fit in without realizing that as we are, we would probably belong. Yeah. And some of the pe some of the comments or compliments that I get about my own persona, I often go, actually, that's one of my ADHD traits. Okay. That <laughs> so I'm kind of like, you know, I, and a lot of the the, the kind of the focus of my work is celebrating those differences, taking a celebratory approach. I would never sit here and say that ADHD is easy. It is a pain in the arse most days, but it also has so many positives as well. Mm. Um, and as I've learned to unmask, mm. I'm starting to hear that feedback of, you know, the creativity, the fact that I can come up with 900 ideas. Is, yes. <laughs> and suddenly people are like, wow, you're really good at that stuff. And it, yeah. it, it's actually... Um, and I was watching a really interesting video of Secret Life of Five-Year-Olds yesterday. I was saying to Kate, I was, I was really emotive about it. And it was this little girl that had cerebral palsy. She was in a wheelchair and um, totally cognitively, uh, really smart and intelligent. And all the other children kept calling her a baby and um, almost you know not intentionally but she became a problem but as you watched it you're like the problem is not the child it's mm -hmm. the perception that exists around her because she in a wheelchair or not she still wants to go up the climbing tree she still mm -hmm. wants to play mums and dads she still wanted conversations her wheelchair wasn't a limitation to her but it mm -hmm. was to other people and I think sometimes we are so so quick to to make these perceptions about others but actually we do just need to allow people to be who they are because that's where the the magic lays coming back to a discussion we were having yesterday about magic but that is where the magic is when people's variations come to light so absolutely and 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 they i think um i think magic for me is is something like this it's actually the power in your voice the mm. power to to speak your truth. Um, and I think everyone's got that, um, but sometimes we're afraid of what we, <laughs> what we might say. Um, and I think that ultimately, if it comes from a space of compassion, you can't really get it wrong. Um, and I saw on a, one of my social feeds, a, a teacher was saying that a year two child said, I don't want to play with that person because he's got different color skin. And then another day, the same little girl said the same thing about another child. 
Um, so it wasn't an issue with the two children. She, she had a problem with children with brown skin. And so she said, sort of shared, you know, has anyone got any resources or any books or information? So I shared um, some ideas. And uh, but afterwards, I was thinking to myself, really, in that situation, you've got the power to say um, without any tools or resources. Well, you know, really, we, we're all friends. We're all part of the school community. And whether they they are in a wheelchair, whether they have you know a, a stick, whether they need to take medication, whether they talk all the time, whatever they is, they're still part of our community, and you should play with everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and but that certainly shouldn't be a reason why you don't want to play with someone. Um, mm -hmm. If they're not a nice person, that's a different reason. But if you know, so I just think that you know people are, are worried about. You know saying the right thing and, and doing the right thing particularly at the moment there's all of this anxiety around you know race and disability but for me it's very simple you know it really is simple you know you just have to take the individual as an individual and you have to respond with kindness yeah it's not rocket science is it <laughs> it's not rocket science Absolutely. And the only way you can ever get it wrong, truly get something wrong, is by not doing anything at all, by being too afraid to step into the conversation and, and not, especially when you're working with children, you know, the, our actions and um, behaviours and the way we are raising future generations, it makes a difference. We, we can't just write it off and pretend it doesn't so we have to get Laura Henry Elaine yesterday said we have to get um, uncomfortable to get comfortable um, and, and I suppose that's um, a way to sum it up but thank you so much for talking to us today I'd love to perhaps have you back again in the future to pick your brains and talk to you because it's been really really great chatting with you today you too, you too definitely if people want to find and follow you they can find you on Instagram Instagram, um, Happy in Schools, yes. and Roland on Twitter, and mm. your book, of course, um, um, Sending the Clowns. It will be, it's on Amazon, isn't it? People will be able to find it from your books. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of amendments being made there. <laughs> yes, it's on Amazon and um, and also at Hashtag Press, and then hopefully in the week or, so, week or two on my website as well when I get around to finishing it. <laughs> talking to you today I think it wouldn't of, of course it will be it's a valuable resource for parents but also for practitioners especially in early years there's such a lack of training and we have mm -hmm. such a lot of responsibility when it comes to roles as SENCO to I think it would also sound as though it'd be really helpful um, in settings as well so thank you so much Susie thank you guys thank you. really appreciate it thanks for asking me thank <laughs> thank you. see you bye just trying to find our jingle to play and I can't <laughs> it up. Goodness me. We're so professional.